listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey listeners, Chris Lopez here, and today we're going to talk about estate planning and asset protection. If you have followed me for a while or read any of our annual investing guides, you know planning for the end is always on my mind because it's going to happen at some point. And it's always on my list every year to get better and better organized for my own peace of mind and also just for my family for whenever that day comes. So today's podcast, I've got a guest on here who's a great attorney around town. I met uh, a while back, a few months ago, and she's actually doing my estate plan now. Been very impressed with her education component and also just her uh, skills as she's taken me through a client. So it's Pam Moss. Pam, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'm really excited on here because this is, uh, I always tell people, this is like exciting for me because I get to, I always get to learn from people and also or learn from people by being selfish, asking questions for myself, but also <laughs> letting other people learn as well. Yeah. I know when I've mentioned estate planning and everything else in that in the past, you know, it, it bubbles up emotions and other concerns that people have. So I'm, I'm excited about talking to you through today. So tell us all like, what made you get into estate planning? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Chris. I think for me, a lot of my motivation for estate planning came from going through it with my own family. And when my grandmother passed away, the estate plan that an attorney prepared for her in Arizona failed. And it was a complete mess. We ended up in court. We have family members who still don't talk. It was really time. It cost a lot of time and money. And really kind of my passion when I looked into it, I thought what the firm had done was commit malpractice, but I found it's actually really common practice. So everything about estate planning that I do is really set up to make sure what happened in my family doesn't happen to other people's families. So where do people start as it comes into like wanting to the estate plan? Like people come in, they talk to you like where, and I know education's a big, a big part of your practice which is one thing that I really like because, you know, we do all of education ourselves. And a big part of the podcast today is going to be pulling from a presentation you did for, you know, talking about estate plans. But where do people even start as they start looking at this? Yeah, I would say kind of one of the easiest ways to get started is to just take an inventory of what you actually have. So that's one of the biggest risks to your family is if something were to happen to you, you know, think about it. If something were to happen to you and your spouse, where would someone that's related to you know where all your accounts are, where all your investments are, what all the real estate you own is. Um, a story that I share that came up um, that a friend recently told me, her family is all lawyers and um, her father was about to go into an emergency heart surgery and was like writing down the mineral oil lease information for her daughter because he had never written it down and he's an attorney. So it's one of those really common things that people don't realize that they need to have in place. And one of the simplest thing is just, you know, take a sheet of paper, write down where everything is, um, and then tell the people you care about where that list is, because it's a big problem. In California, there's 9 billion in unclaimed property. In Colorado, there's fit over 55 million in unclaimed property. So uh, things get lost. Okay. So let's start into the, uh, the main part of the presentation I have five levels of asset protection. And this is geared towards real estate investments. Take it away. I'll let you kind of start because I, I, I've heard most of this. And I found it really interesting. So I want to like 
just turn the mic over to you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's get into it. And before we kind of jump into all of the different strategies for these five levels, I always have to kind of give a disclaimer um, that what we're going to be talking today isn't legal advice, it's legal education. And that distinction here is in order for it to be legal advice, you'd have to meet with me, hire me, retain me, I'd have to give you specific situational information. So this is more educational. And then we're going to be talking about some tax-related stuff. Hey, nothing we're telling you today is to avoid paying your taxes. You got to do everything legally, um, but you can do some tax minimization strategies, which we'll also talk about today. Um, so really, when you think about the five levels of asset protection for real estate investments, you know, picture a pyramid. And the first layer that we're going to be talking about is insurance and state planning. And then that next layer is putting things into limited liability entities. The third layer is multiple entities. And then the fourth or fifth layer are some more advanced strategies, including some out-of-state um, Wyoming and asset protection trust, which we'll get into at the end. So hitting the first layer, oh, before we jump into that, <laughs> quick background on me um, is, you know, I grew up in Arizona. My uh, father is an engineer and my mom is a teacher. And one of the family values they really instilled in me was, as you might guess it, education. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, um, you know, graduated before I went to law school with my degree in engineering, worked actually as a civil engineer and industrial engineer before I went to law school. And when I became a lawyer, uh, or when I announced I was going to go to law school, a lot of my family was, you know, not really excited or stoked about me going to law school. They, um, you know, had had bad experiences with lawyers. They didn't trust lawyers. I'm the first lawyer in my family. So I really, I take that to heart. I know a lot of people listening don't really trust lawyers and have had bad experiences with lawyers. And I'm really, one of my missions is really to change that and make this information accessible to everyone. Um, and then I'm a mom. I have my business as law mother and I have a, a 10 month old baby girl. I'm married. We live in here in Colorado. And, you know, my background to getting into all this and why I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, worked as an engineer, then came out um, to Colorado from Arizona, graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder in 2010 with my um, law degree. So I've been practicing for 11 years. And I started out as a deputy district attorney and really loved being in court every day. Um, but really saw this real need that families didn't have access to a lot of the tools we're going to talk about today. And as a result, their loved ones would be stuck in court um, when something happened. And then I went into civil practice um, after a few years in the district attorney's office. I've done uh, 43 jury trials. I've gotten two multi-million dollar verdicts for our clients. And um, I kind of share that with you because we're going to be talking a lot about asset protection today. And as someone who's worked in litigation and gotten large verdicts, um, I've kind of seen the side of, of taking those depositions and piercing corporate veils. So I'm going to be drawing on a lot of specific experience involving properties and how I've been able to get into people's assets and really try to draw that experience to help uh, people plan in a better way. And then um, I've already kind of shared a little bit of my why uh, at the beginning, which was my grandmother and, and what she went through and why I'm so passionate about this topic. Um, so, you know, before we kind of jump into those five levels, I want you to think for a moment about if something were to happen to you today, who would need your protection? And, you know, when we're thinking about asset protection or, or estate planning, that's really what it comes down to. It's really, it's not about you. It's about the people you love most. And Chris, if something were to happen to you today, what, who would need your protection in your life? No, it's, it's my wife, my daughters, 
It's our dogs too. I learned a few weeks from sitting down with you. It's just, yeah, I mean, that's it. Those are many people, wife, kids, and dogs. Yeah. So, um, yeah, same for me, my, um, my husband, our daughter and our, our two dogs. So, well, let's, you know, talk about some of the asset protection basics. And when we're talking about asset protection, you know, before we kind of talk about the levels, why, why is this a concern or should it be a concern? And a lot of people think, hey, I don't need to be worried. I have insurance. Um, and we all know insurance doesn't cover everything. You know, there's denied claims. There's exclusions in your policies. Um, there's policy limits. People's policies lapse. So you can't just rely solely on insurance. Um, but what are we worried about? Well, you know, there's lots of different s- statistics out there. Um, one statistic I pulled was 40 million lawsuits filed each year. Um, and when we're talking about real estate, there's kind of two different pieces of liability to be thinking about. Inside liability is that risk related to your real estate. So if you own some rental property and here in Colorado, this is a big risk for us, right? Someone's slipping and falling on the ice for an inadequate snow removal and they sue you. That's an inside liability because it's related directly to the property. Okay. And then outside liability is risks unrelated to the property. So things related to, you know, your daily life or your businesses. So if you're in a car accident and it's your fault and you're underinsured and and someone comes after you, can they get into your real estate that you own? Can they attach that to come after you? Um, Do you need protection from that? Or if you're, you know, working with lots of other business owners and, you know, collaborating to buy real estate and there's some type of dispute and they want to come after you, can they attach the real estate to get access to it? So those are the two types of um, liability to be thinking about. And, you know, when we're talking about real estate, in addition to kind of that inside and outside liability, there's kind of specific things related to real estate that you may have come across. Um, You know, some of those things, including you know, contract dispute issues, lead paint issues. Um, If there's a pool or a hot tub, smoke detectors, injured visitors, door locks, um, liability from the manager, violation of different laws, damages to workmen. So those are some other things that come into play when you are, are, when you own real estate. So really when you um, start thinking about asset protection at first, it kind of can seem really silly, like it's major overkill until you actually need it. And then once you actually need it, it's called fraudulent transfer. You can't do it. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So when you hear the word asset protection or you start to having conversations with people about it, get used to people saying, why would you want to do that? Or you can't do that. And it's really important to educate yourself. And that's what you're doing. You're listening to this. You're listening to Chris. So um, really take that step. Um, so what, when should you do asset protection? And the answer is now, um, if you do it after a claim arises, it's considered a fraudulent transfer. And I want to give you some examples to really drive this point home, because I think this is the thing that really gets overlooked when people are doing asset protection and they get into a lot of trouble. And I'm going to give you some examples of some ways people get into trouble. Um, But here in Colorado, we have a really strong fraudulent transfer act. There's also a federal fraudulent transfer act. And if there is a harm, so you go out and get in a car accident, and the next day you transfer your real estate to someone, even though a lawsuit hasn't started, it's just the harm has started, and you go and make those transfers, well, you could be in trouble for fraudulent transfer. And it could involve penalties. So instead of just their damages, they could get two times damages or one and a half times damages, depending on the state. 
Um, they can also freeze your bank accounts. Um, so I'm going to give you two examples of cases that involve this that I was involved in and what exactly happened. And the first case involved a car crash and um, a house being transferred. And so I represented my client who was, she was on the back of a motorcycle and a woman ran a red light and crashed into her. And she was really badly injured. She had her... Um, had to have her leg amputated. That was the $4.2 million jury verdict that I had. And before we went went to court, um, when we were looking into the case, you know, right after the accident, this woman owned a piece of real estate in Parker. And the next day after the accident, she transferred her title to her real estate, to her brother, to her home. Um, she claimed to the police that she had the green light. Our client said that they had the green light. It went to a jury trial. And because she had done this fraudulent transfer, there's actually a case in Colorado that says that the jury gets to use that information as consciousness of guilt. We were able to file a separate lawsuit against her um, and attach the property against her brother as well with for that transfer and um, house, uh, and put a lien against the house um, and then also increase the damages as well because of that transfer. So um, that... Peace is really important to remember. You know, if there's something that happens, um, you know, and you and a harm has happened, and even if you think you're innocent, um, going and making those transfers right after the fact can really cause some major problems down the road. And so they're actually able to use that as evidence of her guilt that she transferred the next day? Yeah, I was able to present that to a jury as evidence of consciousness wow. of guilt, and the jury got to hear that she made that transfer the next day and think about whether or not, you know, there was other evidence yeah. in the trial, but that was something that they also got to think about. And we were able to put file a separate lawsuit for a fraudulent transfer claim against her for making that transfer after this had started and also involve her brother because she had made that transfer. Um, and then the second case that I want to talk to you about involves some commercial property. And I represented a client who was sexually assaulted by her doctor. Um, so she had gone in to see her doctor. Her doctor sexually assaulted her during the visit. She went and reported the doctor to the medical board. And the doctor owned the building where he treated her. Um, it was a piece of commercial real estate. He also owned some real estate, um, residential real estate. And within a few weeks of her actually making that complaint to the board, he transferred all of that real estate, so the commercial real estate and his residential real estate to his wife. And so before I even filed the lawsuit, I got wind of this information. And here in Colorado, um, we have, like I said, we have some very strict laws around this. It's very different depending on what part of the country you're in. But we have some really strict laws around this in Colorado. And I was able to do what's called a prejudgment writ of attachment so before I even filed the lawsuit, I was able to go to court without the defendant knowing, without the doctor knowing, and say to the judge, here's the information. My client reported this to the medical board. Here's all the transfers that were done right afterwards. And this is a risk. This doctor, um, there's a risk that this doctor is going to continue to transfer um, assets and we're not going to be able to collect. Please freeze all of his assets. This is what we were able to present. Um, because this is a prejudgment writ of attachment, the defendant doesn't have notice of the hearing. He doesn't get to come to the hearing. We just have to meet the minimum standard to do this. And then once he gets notice, he can kind of fight it. But we initially met that threshold and we were able to freeze all of his bank accounts for his business, 
for his individual bank accounts. We were able to um, put specific liens against the properties. And so when we delivered the lawsuit in the case, he was also delivered all the news that all of his accounts had been frozen because he had made this decision after this came out to transfer all the real estate. So bottom line, don't make transfers after the fact. There was a lot of things we were able to do in that case because he had made that transfer, um, including freezing those bank accounts. So it's a really, really bad idea. Um, and hopefully these two illustrations give you a good good understanding of why it's never a good idea to transfer after the fact. Yeah, those are uh, impactful stories. So when we're talking about some asset protection basics before we get into the five levels, I just want to make sure you understand a few key concepts before we get there. And the first is real estate is considered a hot asset because it carries that potential for for liability due to the nature of the asset itself, right? I talked about how it's, it, you know, someone can slip and fall and they can get hurt. Whereas cold assets don't carry those types of liability potential like your brokerage account, right? So hot assets should be segregated from each other. And we're going to talk more about that and from your cold assets for maximum protection. And segregation can be achieved through placing each hot asset into a limited liability entity. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. So let's get into the five levels. I mentioned the pyramid at the beginning. So we're going to hit the first layer of that pyramid, which is insurance and estate planning. And so... Your biggest line of defense is always good insurance. And I worked um, for a little while on the insurance defense side where I actually defended companies. And then I worked on the plaintiff side, which I've talked about. Um, And the biggest areas that I saw that people got into trouble was that they had purchased insurance. They thought they recovered and they didn't understand their actual insurance that they owned. So here in Colorado, if you are a real estate investor, you know, you really should work with a trusted insurance advisor, someone you trust, and um, you should really take the time to meet with them and have them make sure they understand your business and the specific risks and make sure you understand the exclusions. So here in Colorado, we have, you know, we have a lot of people that get hurt doing slips and falls, right? With snow removal. So you want to make sure you're going to have that covered, right? So you want to look at your policy, read through the exclusions. If you don't understand them, ask your insurance broker. Um, And normally, it's pretty inexpensive to insure against these types of risks up front. You know, we're talking about um, for the types of real estate that you have and you invest in, you know, it's like, you know, you're talking about, you know, 50 to hundreds of dollars, you know, hundreds of dollars to potentially save you, you know, millions or thousands. Um, So that's where a lot of times I see people who, you know, they're trying to get a good bargain with their insurance and maybe they're working with someone who's new to the field and doesn't understand things. And, you know, that insurance broker wants to, you know, do a good job and get you a good rate. And so they don't really understand where you are. Um, So you really, I do think that's the biggest thing is make sure you have that conversation. Um, MedPay is something that is really easy to make sure is added to your um, property insurance that will cover medical expenses for someone that's hurt. Uh, No questions out right out the gate. So typically when someone gets injured on your property, they're going to have to go through a long process to get reimbursed and to get everything covered. But if you have med pay added, you know, you can get 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, whatever it is. Even, Even if you get hurt on your property, 
they'll if you have that med pay on there, it will usually cover most of these like what I'm calling kind of nuisance claims, right? Someone slips and falls, gets hurt. If they can just really easily get med pay payout, um, it will cover most of your most of your types of claims. So always ask your insurance advisor if they ha- if they if you have med pay, um, if you. Um, are driving around in the state, you want to have good underinsured motorist coverage. <laughs> That's just uh, something I have to describe, um, even though it, it doesn't, um, it's something that people tend to also skimp on and it gets them in trouble. So I'll just throw that out there right there. Um, but for the med pay, just as an, an illustration, I had a client who was injured at a furniture store. Um, the furniture store had a uh, platform and she's looking at the furniture and they had it set up where you couldn't see the edge of the platform and she just fell off and um, shattered her hip and she had to go get emergency hip replacement surgery Ooh. and um, you know she just wanted her copays covered and the business owner um, you know wasn't the smartest business owner and and didn't just pay her copays and so then she went and got a lawyer of me and we took them to trial and we got a multi-million dollar lawsuit and got a large verdict against them. Um, but if their med pay had just covered her couple thousand dollar, um, she would have gone away. That's what she said. She was like, I really just wanted my copays covered. But then when they wouldn't cover it, when they were giving her the runaround, when they were treating her really poorly through the process, she was like, you know, I'm going to get a lawyer involved. And then when you get a lawyer involved, it takes more time and energy. And then, you know, you learn that you're actually entitled to more. So, um, that's, those are some easy things to have in place to really protect you. Um, and then let's talk about estate planning. And um, estate planning is really a plan for life and not death. And a lot of times uh, people think of estate planning as something you need to do when you're really, really old <laughs> um, or you're really, 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 really wealthy. And estate planning really is for everyone. And it's about planning for life. So it's about including disability planning. It's about protecting your family now. And it also is a plan for death. So a lot of times people don't put an estate plan in place uh, because they think you don't need a plan if you, um, you know, unless you're a multimillionaire. And I know some of your your people listening are probably multimillionaires as well. But for people who aren't, who are maybe starting off in their investment journey or kind of building that wealth, um, it's not so much about the money you have. It's about how much input you want and having control over your body and your money. Because if you don't put a plan in place, the default plan is the state's plan, Colorado's plan for you, or the state that you live in, or that the state that you own real estate in. And that default plan, you are not going to like. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. The other reason that people tend to delay putting an estate plan together is they think, well, my spouse is going to get everything anyway. Well, you still need one. You still need a plan. And without one, your spouse is going to have to go to court to make decisions, to be able to make decisions for you if you become incapacitated. Um, And if you two die together, you're going to need a plan in place. Eventually, you will both die. So you will eventually need a plan. And a lot of people feel like the cost isn't worth it. But the default, which is the state's plan, is for it to go to court, which is going to cost more in the long run. So it's also, it's going to, save your family a lot more time and money if you put a plan in place. So the state's plan for you in Colorado and in most states here in the United States is called probate. So if you pass away without an estate plan in place, it's going to go, your assets are going to go through the probate court process. And the reason they're going to do that is because all of your assets are in your name 
and they're going to have to transfer your assets out of your name to whoever it should inherit. And there's certain things that have to happen before that can be done. So if it goes through probate, it has to be put on public record. Creditors have to be notified. There has to be a time delay. If you're listening to this and you've ever been involved with real estate going through probate, you know it's very, very frustrating for family members who have to wait. Um, Sometimes families lose real estate because of the probate process because they don't have the money to pay the mortgage and it gets lost in that whole probate process. Um, They So it's delay, 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 right? It's costly. On average, it takes between nine months and two years and can cost as much as five to 9% of your estate. So just a quick example of the numbers of how probate costs add up. So if you own a $500,000 piece of real estate, you have an IRA with $300,000 and a life insurance policy with $500,000 in it, that's a $1.3 million estate. So the cost of probate in that scenario would be about $65,000. And the cost of putting a estate plan in place is usually about four dollars to $6,000. So you're looking at saving your family you know, upfront about $59,000. But the potential, you have the potential to save them even more, right? The time savings, you can minimize estate taxes, which for some people's estates could be you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. You can minimize capital gains taxes. You can put other tax savings in place. And then there's the asset protection piece. Um, And then we talked about this at the beginning, but one of the great risks for your families is the them not knowing where things are when you pass away. And the Colorado Department of Unclaimed Property has over 500 million in it right now of people that, you know, their loved ones don't actually know where their assets are and they haven't claimed them. And so really taking the time to have that in one place so your loved ones know will really make sure that they actually get what what they deserve and what you want them. You've worked so hard to create all of this money. You want your family to benefit from it in the future. Um, and then when we when we talk about um, real estate, if you own real estate in multiple states, so if you own real estate here in Colorado and you own real estate in Nevada, well, it's gonna that real estate is gonna go through probate in each state where the real estate is. So if you were to pass away, then your loved ones are gonna have to go through probate in Colorado, and then they're gonna have to also open another probate process in Nevada, which is double the court costs, double the fees, all of the time delay. It's a real headache. Even if those are in limited liability entities in those states. This is one of those things I see people do a lot. They go on LegalZoom, they create a LLC in multiple states, and they think it's all covered, but they don't actually have it assigned correctly to avoid probate. And so it's still going to go through probate in all of those states when something happens. So one of the the biggest ways to protect your family from um, that type of hassle when you pass away or when you become disabled or incapacitated is to put together a living trust. And with a living trust, instead of it going, it actually avoids probate because instead of you dying with things in your name, everything is in the name of the trust. So when you pass away, things are available immediately to your loved ones. So let's talk about title ownership options and how. Um, you should take title to your real estate. And titling property correctly is important because if it's titled incorrectly, you know, title owners cannot fix it after they pass away. Also, heirs can lose their property and heirs can end up paying capital gains. 
So probably the most common way I see people holding title is in joint tenancy with right of survivorship. Um, Otherwise, I've seen a lot of sole ownership, obviously for single owners and tenancy in common for multiple owners. Um, Joint tenancy with right of survivorship, um, automatically your property goes to your joint owner when you pass away. Uh, But the downside of that is it ensures that there's going to eventually be a probate upon the death of the second joint owner. And there's going to be some capital gains tax being paid. So uh, the benefit of holding property in either a limited liability entity and assigning that interest to a living trust or holding property in a living trust is you avoid that costly, time-consuming, and public probate that we talked about. The right people inherit and you really protect from estate tax, from capital gain tax. You also protect those assets for, for your heirs from their future creditors, their future divorces. All right, so that was kind of the insurance and estate plan part of the pyramid. And we're going to go on to the second layer of the pyramid, which we for this five layers of asset protection, putting real property in a limited liability entity. So let's stop there at, the, at this uh, first layer, if we can, Pam. So insurance and estate plan, that's, uh, you know, the top layer on there. Uh and I think there's some great points. Insurance, you know, actually read the policies, talk to your agent, ask some nuanced questions. I wrote down, I'm going to go double check mine for slip and fall and some of these med pay things. Uh, and then also doing estate plans. So that is something, the very first thing, if people are saying, hey, do those two things immediately, right? Those are first two easiest things to do? Yes. Okay. And I know you have five levels here. Like, can you quantify like how much protection like this level one gets? Like, is this good enough for most people or like how do you know like how many layers do people need yeah that's a great question and i'm going to talk about it a little bit more at the end about how you can kind of decide how many layers you need um but i think you know it's really going to be custom to you and your specific goals and what you specifically have i will say that a lot of times i come across people who you know watch some video on youtube about some fancy you know offshore strategy and they haven't done kind of these basics first layers. So I'm like, okay, before you spend, you know, $30,000 setting up some offshore trust, let's take a look at what you can do right now that's going to really give you a lot more protection and and save you a lot of money. So um yeah, we can talk through that a little bit more here at the end as well. All right, so moving on, I know you said level 2 put real property in LLCs. Yes. So What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so LLCs are really great for holding real estate because they can be owned by a single member and they don't require as much maintenance as a corporation. Corporations really require board of directors, annual meetings, including minutes. Um, And the LLCs can either be member-managed or manager-managed. And some things you need to really understand about entities is an entity is a separate taxpayer with a separate taxpayer ID number. Uh, You must maintain your corporate formalities to have the protection. So I have taken plenty of depositions of companies who do not have those corporate formalities. And I've been able to do what's called piercing the corporate veil, which is go through the assets and actually get into the corporate assets or the business assets. So your corporate formalities, you know, you can really easily work with your accountant or your lawyer to make sure they're set up, but you really want to make sure you have separate bank accounts, that you're filing a separate tax return, that you're not commingling things. Really what the courts are looking at is this kind of multi-pronged 
test, which is, hey, is this actually a separate entity or am I commingling and it's it's just an alter ego of me? It's not yeah. really a separate entity. So there's things, little checks on your checklist that you can check off. And the, the biggest things are keeping separate bank accounts, filing separate tax returns, not commingling assets, and then having the corporate documents in place, doing your minutes each year, really keeping everything in place correctly so that you are really maintaining that specific protection. A lot of people will go on legal Zoom and just set up a quick and dirty LLC and they don't understand if what they really need to have in place for that LLC to have protection. And this this is really that core of that. These are what you really need to have that protection. And then you want to, so you know the power of having a limited liability entity. We just kind of talked through that. It's really separating your personal assets from your business assets. So if someone were to come after you, if your real estate is in your business and they're coming after the business and you have everything in place correctly, they're not going to be able to come into your personal assets if it's all set up correctly. So can I ask you a random question mm-hmm. that uh, I ask every lawyer I talk to when it comes to real estate? So, you know, a lot of us, you know, the details, you know, how you buy the property with the type of financing dictates how you can take title at closing. So a lot of investors, they buy properties in their own name, take loans out in their own names to get, you know, the great 30 year conventional mortgages. But those mortgages can only come into like, you know, my name or individuals, name, not into an LLC or trust, but people close on the property, get the loan a couple months later, they transfer the property to an LLC. Now, this ha- the fact that I have a loan and my per- if I transfer, you know, one, two, three Main Street to my LLC, but I have the loan in my personal name and I own it that way for 60 days, but now the property's an LLC, but the loan is still in my name. Does that give any help to piercing the corporate veil? Yeah. So that's a great question, Chris. I was actually thinking where you were going of was, would that accelerate the mortgage like due on sale clause? Well, idea? there's that whole part to it as well. <laughs> Um, so your specific question, if I'm understanding you correctly, is, you know, you have that set up in your personal name and then you transfer it to the LLC. Have you now commingled or have you followed everything correctly? Yeah, because you talk about the corporate formalities. Yeah. So as long as you're, you know, I, you know, you'd want to confirm your specific situation with the lawyer that you're working with and the accountant. But generally speaking, you know, if you set up everything correctly to make that transfer, you have the bank account set up correctly, you have the separation there, you you set up all of the documents correctly, you're keeping everything separate, then it should kind of pass muster even though you initially set it up because you needed to find for financial purposes, it should be fine. Great. And then you kind of went to the second part and this is, uh, uh, you know, talk about the due on sale clause because you get this question too. I want to hear your response. Yeah. So I always say work with your mortgage lender. If you're thinking that you are, you know, investing in real estate and you want to set it up, you want to own it in an LLC, tell your mortgage lender that from the beginning, because different mortgage companies are have different standards and some will allow you to purchase it in an LLC. Some will allow you to transfer it um, and some won't. So you want to make sure that um, you have it set up in the way that you can do that if that's your intent. Um, otherwise, you don't want to trigger a mortgage due on sale by making that transfer. Have you ever actually seen uh, a due on sale clause get triggered by an investor transferring the property from their name to LLC? I haven't. I've heard people be told that that would happen. 
Um, I've had other people say, well, as long as you're paying the bill, they're not going to come after you type thing. So, you know, I have heard though lots of mortgage lend- mortgage lenders that I that I work with who as long as they know it up front, they're able to work with you and try to get it approved um from the be- from the get-go. Okay. Um so kind of now we're on to the third layer of the py- pyramid, which is put your multiple properties in separate LLCs or a series LLC. And so why do we want to do this? So if there's a lawsuit against property A and you want to protect property B. So if you own multiple pieces of real estate and someone gets hurt on one property, you want to have them in separate LLCs so that they can't get into the assets of the other property. So the example that um, I have for this is a case that I helped a client who was, she was injured at, at a motel. The family owned multiple motels and they owned it all under one family trust. They didn't have it into separate entities. Um, and so when she was injured um, at that one motel, I was able to get all the information for all the other motels because they owned it as one entity. So it's really important if you want to have the most protection, you really want to put these in separate entities. And actually, before you go on to, to step four here, so um, and so a common structure I've had lawyers tell me, I think we talked about this when we and I met a while back, Pam, was have a master holding LLC that is owned by, you know, husband, wife, or, or whoever. And then that LLC doesn't directly own any real estate, but it owns LLCs below it. So you think of a pyramid, the master LLC is at the top of the pyramid, and then it owns LLCs below it and the properties in each LLC. Is that kind of the common way you've seen people put properties into LLCs? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's always kind of your cost benefit for you, right? So every time you have multiple LLCs, you're going to have to pay, you know, the multiple filing fees. You're going to have to do the tax returns. Yep. You're going to have to do the, um, you know, all the formalities. You're going to have to have separate bank accounts. You're going to have to manage everything separate. So, um, but yeah, that is the best practice. And, you know, a lot of times having a holding company, um, you can have a holding company here in Colorado, or you can have a holding company in a state like Wyoming, which is what we're going to talk about here in a moment, um, if you want some better protection. But yeah, having a holding company is another layer that you can put in place to really kind of separate things out. And then I have a lot of clients that own real estate who also own vehicles and, you know, business vehicles. And you, um, so maybe they're doing some construction type projects. Maybe they own, you know, an earth moving vehicle or a tractor or other types of equipment um, that could be dangerous, right? When you think of when you think of those types of equipment, you think of accidents, right? So you really want to put that in its own entity as well because you want to isolate something like that. Oh, people do that even for. I mean, that makes sense. Never thought about it though. Yeah, if you if you're using like if you if it's just your personal vehicle, right? You can get you you'll want to get some really good um, insurance on it and maybe a good umbrella policy to cover it. But if you have employees that are going to be using like a fleet vehicles and things like that, you really want to put those um, in its own LLC to really separate it if there was going to be some type of bad car crash that one of your employees is taking out of vehicle and something happens. One other question. What mm-hmm. is a series LLC? Because yeah. I've heard a little bit about but actually don't know the details. So if you can enlighten me. Yeah. So certain states have series LLCs, which is 
they're just kind of a fancier or a different version of doing separate LLCs, but they're all kind of in its one group. So they're all connected in that way. Um, So, you know, I don't think, you know, normally I kind of defer to the client's accountant, whether they want to do it as a series versus a separate. Um, From an asset protection standpoint, I don't have a huge problem of doing it as a series versus a separate. Um, But sometimes it's just, it's easier from a accounting standpoint to throw it in that in that way. All right, great. And so kind of that fourth layer is your holding company, which we were talking about, having a holding company in a state like Wyoming or Nevada, which has better asset protection laws. Um, so the nice thing about using a state like Wyoming is they have great charging order protection. So what does that mean? So say, for example, um, you know, someone gets badly hurt on one of your properties and they, um, you know, go to trial and get a million dollar judgment against you. Well, here in Colorado, if they have a million dollar judgment and say you're underinsured, you only have a $50,000 insurance policy, which you're not going to do, right? Because you've listened to layer one, but say, say you did and they come after you. Well, here in Colorado, if they can actually take over your businesses to satisfy that, hmm. They can order the sale of your business. They can take over the business to satisfy that judgment. But in other states like Wyoming and Nevada, there's called charging order protection, which they can't do that. They can't actually take over the ownership um, because there's better protection in Wyoming and Nevada. And so um, because they can't do that, they can only get um, collect on that judgment from distributions you give yourself from that. Um, but there's, so there's that piece. The other piece about Wyoming and Nevada is that there's privacy around um, how things are titled. So in Wyoming and Nevada, you can you can protect the information that you own the LLC. You just have to be really careful when you're doing these structures. And it is very good that it's a very good idea to work with an attorney because I've seen people set these up incorrectly, right? So they set up the Colorado and then they set up the Wyoming. And then on here, you are required to register an out-of-state entity in Colorado if you're doing business here. And when you do that, you have to do it in a certain way to protect your privacy, right? Yeah. So you have to use maybe a registered agent that isn't you <laughs> um, and, and not list yourself as the person filing it. So usually you'd want to use, you know, a uh, attorney or some type of corporation um, that specializes in that. So um, there's a way, right way to do this. Um, and, you know, I would say um, there's um, it's more costly to use Wyoming and Nevada. I don't always recommend it for everybody um, because you're going to have to go through and, you know, work with an accountant in those states and work with a lawyer in those that's licensed there. And you're going to have to pay those additional fees. So it's really depends on your specific portfolio, your specific goals. Do I think everyone needs to go pay for a Wyoming or Nevada LLC? No. Um, It's really that cost benefit for you, but this is another tool in the tool belt. So level four and level five aren't for everyone. It's going to be specific to your assets and your needs, but I'll talk about it here in a moment. And then level five is owning your LLC in some type of asset protection trust, like a Nevada asset protection trust. So the law is really changing a lot in this area. Um, So that's the caveat. Um, This is more expensive and this isn't for everyone. But when you, it's just so you know how these all fit together. 
um, with certain types of trusts. So generally speaking, when you put assets in a trust, you can't go put assets in a trust and then say, oh, you can't come get me because I've put everything in the trust. But in certain states like Nevada, you can do that. Um, in Nevada, you can actually, um, you, you're you giving up a lot of control. So you can have someone that you're the beneficiary, but someone else is in charge of the distributions. And so usually you set up a separate LLC and then you assign a per, per, percentage of your interest to that trust. And it's just another layer of hmm. shielding your assets because you don't actually own those assets. They're in that trust those are those are costly to set up they're costly to maintain it's not for everyone um but it's another tool in the tool belt for people that need that advanced when asset you say protection. costly like what, what's the ballpark yeah so i would say normally people are spending about twenty five thousand dollars for that type of trust and then they're spending about three thousand dollars a year to pay hmm. a trustee in nevada to manage it okay so, so money it's a chunk of money. So it's not for everyone. Um, that's why when I get someone who watched some video and they're, they want to set it up, I'm like, you know, there's some other ways we can achieve your goals that you, you, it's not worth it. But, you know, I have other clients who have the money and they want that peace of mind and they want to put a portion of money somewhere that they have some understanding of what's going to happen. Um, you know, and when we talk about asset protection, um, here, you know, what we're also talking about is wealth preservation. And a lot of times when I'm working with my clients, you know, we've labeled all of this presentation asset protection because that's something that people recognize more than wealth preservation. But even using the term asset protection is always putting you at a potential risk of looking like you're doing something fraudulently. So I always shift the conversation from asset protection when someone hires me to wealth preservation. So the law says, hey, you can preserve the wealth for you and your family and you can be putting, setting up things correctly to, you know, to estate plan, to pass on things to your family. But it gets a little, little more shadier, right? When you're talking about it in the terms of asset protection. So I would um, be so that mindful. that terminology does matter, actually. Huh? That terminology does man- matter. It's so fascinating to me. And, you know, I'd be, I wouldn't put in writing to people that you're looking for asset protection. I would look, put in writing wealth preservation. Um, but we did go through all the fraudulent transfer. And so I, my disclaimer again is, I, uh, <laughs> I want you to follow the law. Um, but this, the law is constantly changing in this area. So when we're talking about asset protection trusts in Nevada, um, Wyoming, um, there's other states, you know, some states, the, the states will, you know, pierce into it. Sometimes they won't. So it's one of those things that people have to understand the risks that it's not always going to be as ironclad as they think, but it's just so you know how it all fits into the puzzle. So how much protection do you need? And so really from the beginning, um, there are certain assets that are protected in Colorado, one summary point, always remember timing, Colorado Fraudulent Transfer Act, which we touched about, touched on. Um, Colorado has a homestead exemption of 75000 So your home that you live in is protected up to $75,000, doubled if you're married. So um, life insurance policies and annuities um, here in Colorado, most of those are also protected from creditors and IRAs are often protected from creditors as well. Does that include 401ks or that yep. considered separate? Okay. Yep. Um, so when I'm meeting with clients, we kind of look through what are your protected assets and look at, you know, 
where is your money? So, um, you know, do you have money? You know, I have clients who, you know, reach out to me. Maybe they're in the medical field. Maybe they're doctors or they're real estate investors who are doing a lot of different transactions and they're worried about lawsuits. Um, they don't have anything currently happening. Um, a lot of times I'm saying, okay, before we go big, let's look at what you currently have in place. And are you taking advantage of what you can cheaply store money in? And where is your money currently? And so there's ways you can put money into um, those types of accounts um, before you go into kind of some of the bigger type things. And and that will um, minimize your exposure. Um, and then unprotected assets are real estate in your sole name or joint name with your spouse. Um, and then taking a look at what you actually have there um, will also kind of understand kind of what your goals are, short-term and long-term, what are the actual risks, and everything that we've talked about. Do you have good insurance in place? Have you maximized that? Have you maximized putting things in different places that you know are already protected? And then what is your portfolio looking like now and in the future? And I know, Chris, you really focus a lot on that education of what are those goals and where Mm -hmm. are you going? And that's really going to kind of give you that guidance of, okay, how much protection do we really need? Great. So, I mean, this has been very helpful. Like I said, great overview on everything. So I appreciate it. Um, Just talk to us about, I mean, if someone comes to you and says, hey, this makes sense, Pam, you know, tell me more about or what do I do? Just what's your, you know, how do you operate as a lawyer? Because I know when we talk, you've got a few things that you focus on differently than also the industry as a whole. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of the traditional experience of working with a lawyer is paying hourly fees, knee-jerk response to problems, and really feeling like you're just a transaction. And really everything that I do at my firm is completely different. We do everything flat-free, agreed to in advance, so there's no surprises. So you're not calling your lawyer for a 15-minute question and you get a $300 bill and you're upset. Um, Planning ahead to really avoid problems and we're relationship-based. I have some clients who um, call me all the time, which I love, um, because I really want people to feel like their plan is going to work and um, for you to have that relationship with our office. So if you, whether you're working with me or you're working with other attorneys here in town or across the country, know that this exists and that you can be asking them about this and, and, and how they operate. And the process that I go through with my clients is about an eight-week process. So I do an initial family wealth planning session. Um, four weeks later, I do my signing ceremony. So uh, my clients are fully protected. And then we do a final meeting after that. Um, I am offering both virtual and in-person right now since the pandemic. Um, and then I do, my fees range usually between four and $6,000 for estate planning, for the foundational planning. When we're talking about more of the advanced planning, um, more, um, you know, set, separate trusts, when we're talking about estate taxes, you know, kind of higher net worth, then there's going to be some additional costs for more advanced planning. Great. And so... I mean, I want you to tell people how they can reach out to you because I've been very impressed with, you know, some of the materials I saw a while ago, I think on Facebook and online from your educational stuff, going through process with you. Like, I like it. I'm enjoying it. My wife's on board. We're, you know, halfway through this uh, eight-week process approximately. So please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I really want to make it easy for your listeners. And I'm a big fan of the show and all the work that you're doing in the community, Chris. I love your 
um, your strategies and how you focus on education. I think we're kind of cut from the same cloth that way that we really care a lot about people having the tools to be successful. And so because I know the biggest risk to your family is procrastination. Estate planning is one of those things that people tend to put off until it's too late. I really want to make it easy for you. So because you are a listener and follower of Chris um, or one of his clients, I have what's called a golden ticket offer, which is $1,000 towards estate planning services. And that includes two gifts. The first gift is a complimentary family wealth planning session. So normally my family wealth planning session is $750 because it's two hours of my time where I go through and give you a full, if you have an existing estate plan, I do a full 50 point audit. If you don't have an existing estate plan, I go through a full inventory of your assets. I kind of analyze how everything would transfer under Colorado law. I make recommendations. So it's a real working meeting. Um, so because you listen to this, I will waive that fee. It will be $0 instead of $750. There is one catch, right? There's always a catch. Um, though the catch is that there's some homework you have to turn in in advance. We give you a secure link once you register. And that homework is super valuable because instead of me just giving you generalities, I'm able to spend, I usually spend about two hours prepping for your meeting. I do all the calculations in advance and I come to the meeting prepared. So I give you all of the information. The other good thing about doing the homework is it gets everything in one place, which we talked about in the beginning is one of those big risks to the family that they don't know. So it gets all organized for you. There's no pressure to work with me after the session. But if you do work with me, I take $250 off your plan. And if you um, if you would like to take advantage of this offer, there's a website, lawmother.com forward slash go. When you go to it, um, you will have to secure the appointment with a credit card. That credit card is not charged unless you no-show or don't cancel within 48 hours. Um, just like when you go to the doctor's office. So, you know, I'm a business owner. I have <laughs> other appointments I need to take. So we really, um, you know, we work for you kind of the same way. It's 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 back and forth. So we appreciate if you set an appointment that you come. So that's how we secure it. Um, but there's a code you put in to zero that out and then it allows you to go to my scheduling link and actually schedule on my calendar. If you're on there and you aren't seeing days and times that work for you, just call my office. We do actually hold a few extra appointments on the side for people. Um, but that will, um, and someone at my office can kind of go through it with you as well. Great. So, sorry, one more thing. I got a random question. Your golden ticket. Is that like a Willy Wonka theme yes. idea? <laughs> all right. That was, uh, I love that movie growing up. Um, all right. So get the golden ticket and you give chocolate at your office too, right? I do. All and right. then um, if you are in the real estate business, um, I do have closing gifts. So if you, um, want that as well. Um, but yeah, um, you can email me, you can call my office, all of that. Lawmother.com has all the information. Pam, this has been really, really insightful. So like I said, I, I've been going through this and there's always, hey, you get one thing in place, life goes on, things grow, things don't always go quite according to plan, always readjust. That's something I like about kind of your approach is just that long-term relationship approach which is what we take. So listeners out there, now I'm working with Pam and her team. I uh, got great things to say. If you have questions, reach out to her or go to, what's it, lawmother.com slash go, was it? Yep. There you go, lawmother.com slash go. Get in touch with her. So Pam, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. 